glorify your name this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll bring you to the major texts that we're going to tonight, and I'll give you others. But if you take your Bibles and go with me to Jeremiah 31. We're not going to start there, but you can start there in the text. Jeremiah chapter 31. Two weeks ago, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity. And that idea, the truth of total depravity, is the fact that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he plunged humanity into total depravity. It doesn't mean that man is acting in conduct as bad as they can, because we know that most of the world can act worse in conduct than than they're actually living. The idea of total depravity is that man is in a state as far separated from God as he possibly can be. There is nothing we can do to please him, to gain his favor. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. We are separated by our sins forever. And the punishment for our depravity is a lake of fire forever and forever and forever. And everybody is born with an immortal soul. When you are born in the flesh, when you're physically born, you have a soul that will never die. Take that into sobriety, thinking some 40 billion souls since Adam and Eve, and everyone will spend eternity aware and alert of their surroundings, either in hell or in heaven. So we needed a great rescue out of our depraved state, right? So last week, I, I talked about the doctrine of grace. And we talked about unmerited, undeserved favor that God has towards rebellious, wicked, sinful creatures. And then we ended with, I ended with King David and Mephibosheth. How King David sought out Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was lame from a fall. He was helpless. He was an enemy. He's of the house of Saul. David is of the house of David. They were enemies. So David stoops down and brings an enemy who is unable to do anything and has not earned or deserved anything, brings him into his house and seats him at his table. What a faint picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So now we talk about regeneration. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a requirement. And so I want to talk this evening about why it's a requirement and what actually happens at the moment of regeneration. Paul says it to the Corinthians this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Um, Paul says, and let me quote the text to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption, these bodies are corrupt because We are depraved. We are separated from God as sinners. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Paul is making a very important statement here that in order for us to go to heaven, we cannot do it in this flesh and blood. God's grace is sufficient, but there's something has to happen in order for us to be brought into God's kingdom. We we know Paul says it to the Ephesians this way, for you all once... We're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are walking according to the prince of this world, according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So we all are born spiritually dead. And the doctrine of regeneration is literally that we need a spiritual birth. We had a physical birth, but we, needed, we need a, a spiritual birth, one literally that is born from above. And so we're going to find out in Jeremiah 31 um, 
what this all includes. I'm going to take you back, before we get to Jeremiah 31, I'm going to take you back to the garden. Just think about this with me. You don't have to go to the text. The Garden of Eden. When God created Adam, God created Adam in innocence. He was a man, fully a man. He, he had human nature. He was a man belonging to the creature of mankind. Of course, he was the only one. And then God created Eve. Adam was created with a holy disposition, a nature. He was given a nature, a spirit within him that was oriented favorably toward God. So when Adam was created and, and he became a life-giving being, his attitude, his characteristics, his attributes were all favorably oriented to serving and pleasing God. Adam desired fellowship with God, right? He, he wanted to know God's will. He wanted to do God's will, and he was able to do God's will. And that's the, that's the nature that God created him. The one problem was Adam did not choose that for himself. It was given to him at creation. There would be a test placed before Adam at which if he chooses to go in favor toward God, I believe he would be confirmed in this holy, perfect nature. Or he had a choice. He could refuse God and go against God, and then he would be confirmed in an evil nature. We call it the sin nature or the old man. We know that the test was placed before Adam, and Adam chose to go against God. He chose to resist the sovereignty of God and to place himself as the leader. And so, the, listen, the moment Adam did that, he was confirmed in his nature, and I'm going to use the word disposition. You know, like if you, sometimes you could say, oh, that person's good-natured. They've got a good disposition. So disposition is the, the spirit of man that affects his character and conduct. At the moment Adam fell into sin, he was confirmed in an evil disposition. No longer was he oriented in pleasing God and walking with God and obeying God, but now his, the spirit within him was independent. It was ruled and reigned by self, and he was, with all of his attributes that God gave him, oriented against God, not for God. And that sinful nature, he passed on to all of his descendants. In order for man to be brought back into fellowship with God, we need a new nature. So Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We need to be made a new creature so that we, we have to be... And so this is what Jeremiah is going to address. And then we're going to look at a couple of different texts. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant... Notice, if it's a new covenant, it implies that there is already an old covenant in place. True? So the Lord says, When I will make a new covenant with, not with the church, but with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. That old covenant in verse 32, it's the Ten Commandments. God gave the Ten Commandments, which were an external law. Where did God write the Ten Commandments? Tablets of? Yeah, on Mount Sinai, exactly, on tablets of stone. It was an external law that could only show man that he was a sinner separated from God by his evil conduct, right? The external law could not change a person's heart. It could not give them the power to obey, the desire to obey. It could give them nothing. The only thing the external law could do is to condemn, judge, find them guilty, 
and, uh, and ultimately leave that for God for punishment. All right? So this is the old covenant. The new covenant is different. Notice that, verse 32. This new covenant is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In other words, this covenant is going to be different than 10 laws written on tablets of stone. It says in verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, meaning after the years of the church and the seven years of tribulation. Here it is. I will put my law in their minds. Notice, before the law of God was written on tablets of stone, now God is going to write it internally. He's going to, so they're going to have the righteous moral law of God internally written in their minds. And oh, he's going to put it in their minds and write it where? On their hearts. So no longer is he going to write on tablets of stone as some type of external law that could not empower them or cause them to love God and obey God. But he's going to actually write the law right on their hearts, inside them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. There'll be a new relationship that's invoked. God will be their God, their Savior. They will be his people. Verse 34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Nobody's going to need to go around in that day and say, Oh, you don't know the Lord. Let me introduce you to him. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about his, who he is and what he's done. Nope. There's no need for that. Here's why. Because they all shall know me. All of Israel will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Savior. Why? Because God's going to put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And then he says this, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The sin nature that has always been a barrier between us and God is going to someday for the Jewish people be removed. So what do we know so far? Israel's going to get a heart change. Instead of outside laws that can only condemn and convict, they're going to get the law of God written on their heart, and they're going to be an, they're going to, it's going to enable them to have a disposition favorable to God so that he will be their God and they will be his people. From there, um, but by the way, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. Look at the contrast here. You're in Jeremiah 31. Go back to chapter 17, verse 1. Here is the problem of all humanity. It's the problem that Adam and Eve had in the garden when they fell into sin, and it's the problem that Israel had in the Old Testament, and it's the problem that you and I have in the New Testament. Jeremiah 17.1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved. It almost sounds like what you would do on a tablet of stone, right? Use the tip of a diamond to carve into stone. But where is the sin of Judah written? On the tablet of their heart. See, they have a problem. They have a dead heart that has only written on it indelibly their wicked sin. And God says, there's nothing I can do. Your sin has separated you from me, and, um, and I cannot be with you. What they need is somehow they need that sin taken off, and they need the law of God written on their hearts. So here's what they need. Go to Jeremiah 4.4. 4. We're going to head backwards into Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 4. Beginning in verse 3, there's a pleading from the Lord. The Lord wants the nation Israel to return to him in their heart to return to him. So verse 3, break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among the thorns. You know why? It's not that 
It's not that their fields were in bad repair and God being a good creator says, hey, you guys, let me tell you how to plow your fields. You got to break up the hard ground and here's how you plant the seed and here's how you weed. He's not giving them agricultural lessons. What's the fallow ground? What's the hard, stony ground? It's their heart. God says, Israel, you've got a heart problem. You've got major heart disease. Your heart is, is fallow ground. It is rock hard. And then he says this, verse 4, circumcise yourselves the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. What they needed was they needed that wicked, sinful state, that nature to be broken and God's law put on their heart so that they could finally have a relationship with him and, and obey him and follow after him with the whole heart. So go now to Ezekiel 36, the next major text, Ezekiel 36. Adam confirmed himself in a sinful disposition called the old man in the Bible, the old nature. And from that moment on, every boy, girl, man, woman has needed a new nature to be given to them. They need a new nature because our sin is written indelibly on our heart. And what we need is we need God's moral law, his moral standard written on our heart. And, but not only that, we need a new nature like Adam had when he was created that's oriented to pleasing God, following him, and obeying him. But not only that, we also need a power in our life to enable us to do all of that. That's what regeneration is all about. Listen, you guys, when you are born again, when you are regenerated, God gives you one thing upon another thing upon another thing in order for what Adam did in the garden to be reversed. And so let's take a look at how Ezekiel portrays the same thing in the Old Testament. Verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Here's what God says. For I will take, I will take you from among the nations, because that's where Israel's been scattered for 2,000 years, amongst all the nations. God says, I will gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. That's the current nation of Israel in the Middle East. Here's what God's going to do, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Okay, that right there is justification. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to remove all of their sin and declare them righteous. Are they still sinners? Yes, they are. They're still sinners. But now God's going to cleanse them. He's going to declare them righteous. Verse 26, I will give you what? A new heart. That's what they need. They need a new heart and put a new spirit within you. They need a human spirit Instead of being oriented against God to defy him and to rebel against him, they're going to be given a new spirit that, just like Adam had, is going to be favorable, it's going to be favorable towards God to please him, to follow after him, to walk with him. And then God says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. A heart of stone is one who does not beat and cannot respond to God. That is the old man, the sinful nature, has a, a stone heart that cannot respond to God, and God's going to give them, in place of that, a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is one that can beat with love and worship and adoration to their, to their God. Look at verse 27. He doesn't just give this new nature to people. I will put my spirit within you. God says, I'm going to give you the third person of the Godhead to be your power, the comforter, the guide, your teacher, and the, actually the power within you. Listen, everybody. 
at the moment of regeneration, you don't just get a new heart and a new nature so you can live and follow after God. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you have the power and the ability and the desire to do all of those things that please God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, notice it's God causing us, or Israel back then, to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them, which is what he wants. He wants his children to love him and obey him, which is what we're going to do for all eternity up in heaven. Listen, all of this comes about through regeneration. Because this flesh and blood, with a sinful disposition, with my sin written on my heart, it cannot get to heaven. There is no way. But what I need is I need a new heart, a new spirit, and a new power, the Holy Spirit, so that I can finally say that God is my God and I am his child. Again, all of this, all of it comes through a new nature, through regeneration. So Isaiah, Isaiah 51, God says to Israel that all of his children have the law of God written on their hearts. In Psalm chapter 37, David also says that God will write his law on his children's hearts. And Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, same thing. So this is not a new concept of being born again, of regenerating. Like when I'm talking to people out in the community, maybe strangers or people I run into or even my students at school, and I talk about being born again, they have the same confusion that Nicodemus did. And since Randy Chauvin just preached so thoroughly on John 3, I thought, I don't even want to go to John 3 because you've already been there about being born again, about being regenerated. But there is much, much confusion about it. But without somebody being born again, there is no hope for them. There is no life. All, all they have is judgment and death coming. So people must be born again. It's um, very clearly stated in the scriptures. All right, so let me give you a list of eight things, eight things right now that happen at the moment that you are regenerated. Ephesians chapter 2. The first thing that, one thing that happens when we are regenerated or when we're born again is God makes us spiritually alive. You who were once dead in trespass and sins, he has made alive. By grace have you been saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. So the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are instantly spiritually alive and a new creation. Secondly, this regeneration, it takes place instantly. It's not a process. You don't grow into salvation. It is, you're either saved or you're not. You're either born again or you're not. It is instantaneous. The moment you trust Christ, it is irrevocable. You are regenerated. You are made spiritually alive. And you will be spiritually alive for all eternity. For instance, physically, I was born 9.33 a.m., July 18th, 1967. It's on my birth certificate. I, I wasn't being born for many, many years, and I'm finally getting out of being born. Nope, I was born. There was a 9.32, I wasn't born. 9.33, I was born. And I don't have to be born again, again, again. I was, born, I was already born. Same thing with the spiritual birth. It's either you are or you're not. And I do talk to a lot of Christians, and I'll talk to them about being born again or, or you know, having the life of Christ in them. And they're like, well, I'm sure I have. I've been going to church a long time. And I'm like, well, no. It's, and, I'll, and I'll be like, is there a moment when you trusted Christ? Well, I've always trusted Christ. Yeah, but it's not a process. It's either you're in or you're out. 
Either you're in darkness or you're in light. You're either in death or you're in life. You're either a child of Satan or you're a child of the devil or the child of God. You're not in between. You're either there or you're not. You agree? All right. And even in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God said it's going to happen instantaneously. I'm going to put a new spirit in them, a new heart, and I will give them my Holy Spirit so that they can finally please me and follow after me. All right. So, number one, God made us spiritually alive, Ephesians chapter 2. Number two, it is instantaneous. That's John chapter 3, verse 5. You must be born again, born from above, just like that which of the flesh is flesh, so that which is spirit, spiritual is spiritual. And so um, it happens at a moment in time. Number three, we receive a new nature. So being born alive spiritually, we also become a new, cre- a new creature. Something that wasn't there is now there, this new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. A new- God gives you something that you never had before. Your old man, your sinful disposition, is there still. It will always be there until you go to heaven. The old nature doesn't get better. See, God does not reform the old nature and then have you stop sinning so your old nature gets better and better and better. No, that's not at all. The old nature that you were born with, this sinful disposition, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, says it is getting worse as I get older, not better. So when I was born, thank you, Mom and Dad, July 18th, 933 a.m., they produced in me, I was given from them, the same sinful disposition Adam was Adam had. And it, to this day, it has never gotten better. As a matter of fact, it has only gotten rottener and stinkier and worse. But, but 24 years ago, when I was regenerated, God made me spiritually alive, and he gave me a new nature that I never had before. And I will have that for all eternity. Amen. Next. Number four, we receive the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned that in Ezekiel 36, but God puts his Holy Spirit in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that you are not your own, but you are bought with a price? So God puts in my body the third person of the Godhead, which means I can grieve the Spirit of God by doing certain sinful things because does he ever leave me? No. So when I sin, the Holy Spirit is in union with all of that grossness. And I grieve him. Or if he wants me to do something and I don't do it, I can quench him. I can, I can like literally smother the Holy Spirit and say, I don't want you to do anything. I'm going to do my own thing. Don't convict me. Don't tell me. Don't guide me. Don't direct me. Don't empower me. I'm doing my own thing. So I can grieve the Holy Spirit. I can quench the Holy Spirit. But at that moment of regeneration, I have the Holy Spirit permanently. Next. The law of God is now written on my heart when it never was there before. All right, take your Bibles. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is an important one. They're all important, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the law of God, the moral requirement of God's law is written on my heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Which is why as a Christian or as a believer, sin should bother you. You should be greatly bothered by sin. It should not be something you're comfortable with or you accept or you enjoy or you love. It should be something that is offensive to you. Because, listen, if I'm driving down the road and 
um, thanks to our St. Louis County Highway Department, they can have sign after road sign after road sign. Those are all external, right? They do not change my mind about speeding or not speeding. They simply tell me what's expected. What tells me how fast I should drive? Whether I see the police officer or not. When I see the police officer, what do I do? Internally, I'm internally motivated, and all of a sudden, you, you either put on the gas because you're going too slow, or you brake because you're speeding, right? It's not the sign that made you do it. The sign had no power over your behavior. It was a different authority. And when you have the Holy Spirit, when you sin, you should, be, you should feel crushed. How long did David go after he murdered Uriah? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He offended everybody in Israel. and When he did all of that mess, how long did he go before confessing his sin? He went over a year. He had a child born from Bathsheba. And in Psalm 32, he says, I feel like I'm in the desert, parched. I cry all the time. I've lost weight. I don't sleep at night. I'm miserable. Why? Because he had unconfessed sin. It should bother you. And so here's how Paul says it to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Okay, here, let me set it up real quick. Here's what's going on with the Corinthians. Are you with me? I want to take you back to the Corinthians and what, what it was like back then. The Apostle Paul started the church, and he formed this church, and he taught this church, and then he moved on to other ministries. Meanwhile, false teachers came in the door, and these false teachers had letters of recommendation. They were shiny. I bet they were shiny documents with all sorts of ribbons, and they had all sorts of signatures and said, hey, we're legit. We're, everybody recognizes us as ministers of the gospel, so please let us teach your church. They had all of these letters of recommendation, and Paul had none. He didn't have a letter of recommendation. So now the problem is Paul's saying, wait a minute, Corinthians, do you really need letters of recommendation from me? Do you really need to see my diploma or document that I'm authentic? You're believing everybody else with their false letters of recommendation. You won't believe me? That's the context. Here, look at verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, letters or epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? I mean, it was standard practice back then that if you're going to come and be an orator or speak at somebody's assembly, that you would have some documentation that you were of rabbi so-and-so or you were whatever. You had to have some letters of documentation. And Paul says, do you really need this from me? When I come in, do you need to check my diploma and all of my credentials? Verse 2, you, Corinthians, are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul says to the Corinthians, you want evidence of my, uh, my apostolic authority? Look in the mirror. The reason you're born again and sitting in church is because of my ministry. My ministry has credential. You don't need more. You see it. You, you experienced it. Look in the mirror. You are the letter of recommendation I need. That's all I need. Verse 3, now he's going to take clearly you are an epistle of Christ. Christ saved them ministered by us, Paul says. So now he says, listen, you're not just my letter of recommendation. Christ is the one who saved you, and it was only my ministry that enabled that to happen. Listen, written not with ink, that's how they became an epistle of Christ. Not with ink, because what do you, where do you write with ink? On external paper. But Paul says, you were not written on with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. So now he brings up the Ten Commandments but on tablets of flesh. The Holy Spirit wrote the law of God on the hearts of all the Corinthians. Pretty cool, isn't it? 
So God wrote, the Spirit of the living God wrote, not with ink, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the contrast between us being saved by grace and the law which only condemns. And you know how it is. I mean, right now I bet the moon is gorgeous. Did you guys see the moon last night? Beautiful moon. Almost, it was incredibly bright. But you know what? When the sun rose this morning, did I even ask myself where went the moon? No, I didn't even think about the moon because the sun was in my eyes. The Old Testament law is like the moon. It's it's shown it's shown God's standard on a dark world. But when Jesus came and he saved us from our sin, we don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need the law because although that's glorious, the ministry of the gospel is far more glorious. And then he says that the light of Jesus, when we look on him, changes us degree by degree into another state of glory. So right now you're growing. By next week, you should be a little bit more spiritually mature. Next year, more spiritually mature. When do you stop growing in Christ? Not until we get to heaven. It's going to be an ongoing process. But it all happens because God wrote his law on your heart and gave you the spirit of the living God. That all happens, by the way, at the moment you are born again. So, next. Um, Romans 8.3, the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in us. So not only do we have the law of God written on our heart, but now we have the requirement being fulfilled in us. Before, we could never keep the Ten Commandments or the law. Now, because the power of God is in us and his law is on our heart, we can actually fulfill God's holy standard. Do you have to sin as a Christian, as a believer? You don't have, can you say no to sin? Yes, because the power of sin has been broken. So the moment you are born again, the, being a slave of sin is no longer where you live. You're now freed from the law. You're freed from the slavery of sin to serve a new master, Jesus Christ. Let me give you a quick illustration. If I were to work at McDonald's, and I had the worst boss ever, and he made me scrub the floors with the toothbrush and all the greasy vats and all of that. Um, and finally, one day I say, I'm fed up. I'm done serving this bad boss at McDonald's. I'm going to work at Burger King or someplace. So I leave, and I get a new master. Great, right? What if I go back to McDonald's, and I order a cheeseburger, and my old boss comes out and says, Brian, get back here and start scrubbing the floor again. Do I have to listen to him? No, why not? Because he's no longer my boss. I'm no longer a slave of his. But what do I do? I might pick up the toothbrush and go back and start scrubbing again. That is what the Christians are doing. We have been freed from the slavery and the mastery of sin in our life through being born again. We don't have to go back and serve sin. We've got a new master. But what happens? Satan entices us. He tempts us. And what do we do? All right, Satan, I'll go back and do that again. It was kind of fun for a moment. Lots of misery after, but it was fun for a moment. And that's the cycle that a lot of Christians go through. Back and forth, back and forth. All right, next. I don't even know what number I'm on. Seven. Number seven, we are placed in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. When you are born again, God writes the law on your heart. He gives you a new spirit that is oriented to pleasing God. He puts his spirit within you, and then he places you in a body called the body of Christ, which is all believers during the church age. It is a great blessing to be part of a church. I'm talking, yes, the universal church, but every local church is a microcosm of the universal church. This body right here, it's important. It is important you're here. 
Because if my hands just don't show up someday, I'm going to have a hard time driving and doing my work. If my feet just choose not to show up or my eyes say, "Mm, I'm out of here for a while, my whole body gets affected. So the moment I'm born again, I'm regenerated, God does all these things instantaneously. Boom, boom, boom. And then he takes me out of the world and puts me right in the church. Didn't even know it, but it happened. Now I know it. Next, number eight, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. The moment that I trust Christ, I am sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed of this great process of glorification to happen. It's a, listen, there's one sure deal in my life that I, and I want you to, as we close right here in just a moment, here's what I want you to hang your, your truth on. Grab hold of this. I don't know what tomorrow's going to ha- I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I really don't. I don't know what next week's going to bring. Um, actually, I kind of know. Next week, Melissa and I are going to be taking a week of vacation. It's my mom's nice birthday coming up. I, don't, I won't say how old. <laughs> Can I say all right, it's my mom's birthday coming up, and so Karen and Brian and Melissa and I, are, we're going to take my mom and dad on a trip and just celebrate just my mom and all that she's uh, done for us and all of that. But, so I know what's going to happen then. But really, I don't know what's going to happen because any sorts of bad things or good things could happen. I have no clue. But here's one thing that I am guaranteed of. The moment that I was regenerated, the moment I was born again, and God gave me his spirit, and he made me new, a new creature, and he wrote his law in my heart, he also guaranteed that I will be bodily raised from the dead. It's the end of the whole package deal. I am going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going to be in glory for sure. No doubt. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. And last, I am made a child of God. Because I'm born again, regenerated, I'm regenerated into something. I'm a child of God for the first time ever. That happens at regeneration. So you must be born again. Without it, you are like Adam when he sinned, separated from God with an evil disposition against God and fighting against him your whole life. But when you're born again, you're given this new nature that finally can please and serve and honor God. Jeremiah talked about it. The Psalms talked about it. Isaiah 51 talks about it. Ezekiel 36 talks about it. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. Don't you know these things from the Old Testament? Paul talks about it. He made us alive spiritually. Um, This flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. I mean, Peter talks about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, we didn't even get to that. You, um, blessed be the God and Father of all mercies, because according to his mercy, we have been begotten again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, we could go on and on. 1 Peter chapter 1, how does it happen? We were born again, not of corruptible seed. Again, sorry, mom and dad, but when I was born, I was born of corruptible seed, and I'm going to die. But when I was born again, it was incorruptible seed by the very word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So I hear God's word, I believe it, and I now have incorruptible seed. I will live forever, spiritually alive. That's exciting. By the way, it's the only way to get out of Adam's fall. It's the only way. So don't don't neglect the doctrine of regeneration. There's many more texts, but just think about the blessings of being born into God's family. Father, thank you for our time together this evening, another doctrine of the faith that we're looking at. So I thank you that um, although we were physically born, we also, by trusting in Jesus, 
have been spiritually born again. And all of these wonderful truths have impacted our life, and we will live forevermore. So thank you, Father, for putting the Spirit and the law, of, uh, your moral um, law on, written on our heart. May this week we go with joy and, and uh, excitement to serve you and to walk with you each and every day. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rescue us from this present evil age. But until then, we are going to serve you with the whole heart, no matter what. You are our God. We are your church. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Um,